Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of administrators, you know, they had had an expectation that teachers come and they get hired, they're hired and, mm-hmm. and they come to the classroom with a really solid foundation of instructional practices and understanding of education and what education means, you know, what education yeah. is and, and how to break down a very complicated or complex process, like a sentence, you know, yeah. or a paragraph or piece of writing. And then able to explain it to someone who doesn't have a grasp or hasn't had many successes in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that kind of baseline foundation is not there right now. Yeah, It will come. I yes. know that it will come, yeah. but it's not there now. And so the teachers that are in the classroom and have been in the classroom are really struggling to meet the demands of their own students, yep. become trainers and role models and mentors for these young teachers. They want to be better, yeah. you know, yeah. and they want to be there for the kids. Hi, this is Edie. Welcome to The Dispatch, a Heinemann podcast series. Over the next several weeks, we'll hear from Heinemann thought leaders as they discuss the most pressing issues in education today. In today's episode, we hear from Heinemann author Liz Prather about the pressure of the teacher shortage and how we can support teachers who come to education through alternative certification. What's the pressing issue in education right now that you keep thinking about or talking about with your colleagues? Yeah, so take your pick. There's a lot. Just one. There's a lot. (laughs) Just one, I (laughs) I think what I hear mostly from teachers, the pressure of the teacher shortage Mm. and not only having a lot of empty vacant positions, Mm -hmm. especially in my state of Kentucky, we have a lot of about 2000 still that are, haven't been filled. Vacant positions. Vacant positions of teaching. But the different, the alternative routes to certification. Mm -hmm. Also, we have option nine in Kentucky, uh, which allows uh, someone with a bachelor's degree to become a paraprofessional and work towards certification after three years. So Mm -hmm. what we're seeing with veteran teachers it's a lot of training, on-the-job training of young teachers. And so there's not the depth of instructional practice and classroom management and just the depth of content knowledge. It's just not there. So we don't have teachers and the teachers that the young teachers that we do have, which are, they're incredible. They're, they're ambitious and they want to be there. They have a heart for kids, but they don't know how to plan a lesson. And they are, are struggling really with just the basic kind of instructional practice that many of us got going through a traditional educational program or certification path. Um, So that's a big issue. Funding's a big issue in Kentucky, I know, probably across the United States. Our funding is based on attendance, student attendance. And we just have chronic absenteeism across the board. A lot of kids not coming to school. And we also just have uh, a lot of a lot of administrators and districts that are kind of doubling down on programs instead mm-hmm. of authentic critical thinking and teaching and one-on-one and a Do lot of... Do you think they're leaning into that a little bit because of all of yes. the, this alternative certification yes. and so sort of leaning into that program almost as a solution to this? I don't know. I'm wondering if that's... Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of administrators, you know, they had had an expectation that teachers come and 
they get hired, they're hired and, mm-hmm. and they come to the classroom with a really solid foundation of instructional practices and yeah. understanding of education and what education means, you know, what education yeah. is and, and how to break down a very complicated or complex process, like a sentence, you know, yeah. or a paragraph or piece of writing, and then able to explain it to someone who doesn't have a grasp or hasn't had many successes in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that kind of baseline foundation is not there right now. Yeah, It will come. I yes. know that it will come, yeah. but it's not there now. And so the teachers that are in the classroom and have been in the classroom are really struggling to meet the demands of their own students, yeah. become trainers and role models and mentors for these young teachers. They want to be better, yeah. you know, yeah. and they want to be there for the kids. But then also they're having some pushback from the administrators who just want to buy another program and another program and or another, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, piece of technology. Okay. Like quick for something, like something the, quick, quick fix, fix that, yeah. that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't exist. And we really we know what works. Yeah. We know what works. And it's, you know, two people sitting across the table from one another, mm-hmm. having a conversation and telling stories and, and breaking down complex, yeah. you know, ideas, um, teaching a kid how to think, right. you know, teaching a kid how to write teaching a kid how to read. Um, and those kinds of things have always been problematic in a system that was inequitable and kind of ha- had a lot of shaky systems in place. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a thousand people have already said, the pandemic and the shutdowns exposed a very flawed and faulty system. But let me say this, it is not all lost. I mean, so many wonderful things have occurred since the pandemic. And so, um, yeah, I think that it will improve. We got some horrible news in Fayette County where I teach or where I once taught. 56% of our eighth graders are not proficient in reading. That's in Kentucky. That's in Kentucky. And that should be a wake-up call for everyone. Mm-hmm. ACT scores in reading are the lowest they've been in years. So these are these are things that you know go to the heart of everything, our mm-hmm. economy, our democracy, everything. So do you think that that data you just mentioned is largely due or, or partly due to the absences or the low attendance? Sure, sure. Yeah. A lot of distraction, a lot mm-hmm. of it feels as though that we can't get any momentum going in the classroom toward things. We're torn in so many different ways. We have so many different initiatives and so many different programs. Mm-hmm. And, and some of those are worth, you know, uh, worthwhile. And some of them feel very scattered. And I think that the students feel torn by the expectation to make up for lost time. They mm-hmm. feel this kind of anxiety and the teachers feel it too. This is the from coming out of the coming pandemic. out of the pandemic. Yeah. It was just like we've got to hurry, hurry, and make up for these three years that we've lost, and that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, you know this kind of anxiety about immediately covering in nine months what we should have done in three years. It's just not going to happen. So it's going to be ten years. It's going to be a decade before we can like resume. You know, I think, mm-hmm. um, and it will happen. Because teachers are the hardest working people on the planet. Truth. And they will do what it takes. And I really, I'm now in a position, uh, having left the classroom, I've retired in 2022, and I'm now working with teachers and districts all over the state of Kentucky for in the, the area of writing. And, oh, my goodness, the teachers just are selfless and incredibly committed 
to moving that needle for their students. Even the young, you know, the young teachers who may not know, they they don't even have really enough understanding about professional learning to to ask like what is it that I need? What yeah, what do I need? What do I need to know? What do yeah. I need to know, right? And so so um, is that where a lot of the like you mentioned, the the veteran teachers are yeah. probably that's where a lot of that added work of guidance and is coming in, right? Exactly. And see, I think that is actually much better than possibly a traditional college, you know, if you have a college professor, no, no, you know, offense toward college professors, but you know, if you have a college professor who hadn't been in a classroom for 20 years trying to teach students about instructional, you know, practices, but you have the lady or the man right, right across the street or right across the hall who's been doing this and doing it very well and being very successful at helping kids become better thinkers. And they come across and said, have you ever thought about doing this way? Have you ever thought about structuring a lesson this way? Or let me let me watch you mm. and let me sit in the back and scribe what the kids are doing when you give this instruction. So you can tell you, then I will tell you back, you know, and show you like, where's the leverage points that when you say this, they do this. Did it have any impact? You know, getting that feedback. We, we need those coaches in that classroom to help young teachers know if they're making any difference, know, know, to know what moves, what instructional moves to make. And I think that's actually maybe, I mean, I think it is better yeah. uh, if you have that. The problem is these veteran teachers are not getting right any kind of recompense. They're not getting any kind of, you know, extra pay or, you know. Yeah, it would uh, it'd be great if like the model could be acknowledged exactly. as the right model and then move forward from there so it doesn't become a and added. Exactly. You know, it doesn't contribute to the burnout of the job. Right. 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 Yeah. And those veteran teachers know, they know their way around the kind of perennial issues that students have, Uh, you know, the defensiveness and the the acting out, just the classroom, the kind of behavioralism, you know, the behavior problems that we have. And that in, in itself is never something that has ever been treated. It's never been addressed really in a, in a traditional certification path, you know. Classroom management has always been one of those things where when you ask about it, it's always like, you'll figure it out. (laughs) You know, you'll figure it out when you get in your classroom. Well, that causes a lot of burnout. It causes a lot of teachers to leave the profession because they don't know how to manage 30, 14-year-olds and how to teach them how to write an argument. And that's just an unbelievable task. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You've long been a teacher of writing. Yes. And I I know you're also a prolific writer yourself. So I'm curious, what's on your bookshelf right now? Oh, well, I decided in January that I was going to sign up for a um, program called the Poetry Gauntlet. And it's offered by local, our local literacy center, the Carnegie Center for Literacy. And it's uh, run by poet uh, Chris McCurry. And 12 people are accepted and they commit to writing 100 poems in a calendar year. So I have written a hundred poems this year. So on my nightstand, on my I bookshelf, see you like to take it easy on yourself, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. Right. No problem. No problem. <laughs> oh, it's been such a great challenge. We meet once a month, and it's just been such a good community to be in. I've thought about, you know, so many times as I've gone through this process, I wish I was still in the classroom. I'm learning so much about 
writing poetry and expression and just the, the line breaks and the syntax and diction and the, the weight of lines and just, you know, all kinds of things about poetry that I'd not really brought to the classroom would not have, you know, I didn't have access to that kind of deep spending time and immersion in that genre. So on my bookshelf right now are a lot of poets. Patricia Smith's Blood Dazzler, which is incredible. Um, Ada Lamone, our poet laureate, um, the hurting kind. She's also a Kentucky, you know, uh, not native, but she lives in Lexington. I've also been reading a lot of craft books and just doing a lot of research as well. And that's something that I really had not thought about in relation to poetry is how much actual historical research I would need for some of the poems that I'm writing about 16th century mysticism in Spain or, you know, things like that, that were kind of off the, you know, beaten path that I I didn't realize I would need to do. And I did not give my students that kind of time because, you know. The time for research. The time for research, right. It was like, you know, this is just kind of emotive or confessional or expressive. But there are so many, I mean, there's just so many gorgeous forms of poetry that kind of bridge and, and intersect history and the pers- the personal and the public and to have my students kind of use that as a means of argumentation, yeah. you know, to actually see the sonnet as a form of argumentation. So it's been a wonderful journey. And those are the kinds of things I've been reading lately. Oh, nice. And so with this challenge, are the poems self-driven. They're not assignments necessarily. No, they're, no, they're, yeah. they're not. We meet once a month, like I said, and we read some craft okay. articles and, and we read books of poetry and we discuss poets and we do workshops and things like that. But the goal is just to write whatever it is that we're writing. Yeah. And I, I had a real, you know, I had an idea when I signed up, I was going to write my family my family has farmed, uh, been tobacco farmers for 350 years in the United States. And I was going to write, uh, I wanted to write a whole collection about tobacco mm-hmm. and never wrote one tobacco poem. <laughs> Did not write <laughs> one poem about tobacco. Wrote about my mother, yeah. wrote about teaching a lot of great, mm-hmm. um, really some things that you just can't write in an essay mm-hmm. that were able, I was able to give voice to in a poem about teaching. And some of the dark kind of misgivings and doubts that I had as a teacher, especially as a young teacher, and mm-hmm. how how guilty I feel about or felt about some of the things that I missed, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the opportunities I had with students that I'll never be able to go back and and correct and fix. And so poetry is a great caregiver yeah. in that way, you know. So I feel like you've struck a very hopeful tone throughout this whole conversation. So... I would like to focus on that now. And just as you think about some of the challenges you mentioned in the beginning, what at this point gives you hope? The kids. Yeah. The kids. The kids always give me hope. I don't know I would have ever stayed in education for 27 years if at the very center of the practice was these precocious, funny, nerdy, great kids that, you know, come every morning and make me laugh and, you know, ask me questions and challenge me. And, you know, the kids in the latter part of my, my students in the latter part of my career made me just such a better person, just in general. They're so kind. They were kind and they were accepting of others. They were they're broad-minded. They're, they think globally. They are very compassionate toward one another. I know, you know, we 
that's the thing that the news and I think a lot of people get wrong about schools, that it's this place of like bullying. And of course there is bullying at schools, but there's so much incredible warmth and support and compassion for each other and acceptance, just, just complete unconditional acceptance. And that's what I think I'm the most hopeful for. And they accepted me, you know, as someone who was asking them to do this very incredibly vulnerable thing, which was to, I want you to trot out your thoughts on a piece of paper and I want you to defend them. And I want, and it may be scary and you may be exposing something you don't, don't even know you're exposing, you know. But this is the risk that we take as writers. And they had to trust me, and I had to trust them. And that's a rare day when you can go home and you've had a group of people that have been in community together and loved each other and supported each other and learned something, in, too. You know, So all of that is happening in, in classrooms all over our country. And it never gets the press that you know, it never gets that press. We are all, it's always about what probably where I started, where I started this interview, which is 56% of our eighth graders can't read at proficiency, right? That's what they hear. That's the headline. That's the headline. Yeah. But the stories are di- bigger and deeper and more powerful and they're richer, you know, and they're more long lasting. So those connections that I made with those kids and how they've touched my life and how hopefully I've touched them and taught them something, you know, that will, that will pay, have dividends years and, and years and, uh, generationally. So, yeah. So the kids, you know, I go into schools and I don't have a relationship with the kids that I go into these schools and model classes. So they don't know me. They just know I'm some woman from, you know, the state department or Moorhead State University. They just see me and I'm, oh, right. This is with your current role yes, as the I'm, director of, well, or co-director. I, yes. So I'm the working presently as the co-director of the Kentucky Writing Project. And so I go into these districts and do model lessons for teachers about writing, or I work with professional learning communities and we talk about writing and kind of instructional practices around that. But the best times are when I go in and I, you know, and I talk to kids and they're just, they're just so open and just so funny. And I was working with a district a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about writing an argument. And so the question was, should teenagers be able to buy energy drinks? And so I had given them a text and we'd read it and we were kind of, you know, doing some annotation. And one of the quotes or one of the facts that one of the students wrote on the butcher paper on the wall was that, you know, caffeine, coffee that adults drink has just as many milligrams of caffeine or whatever as an energy drink. And I, of course, I was holding desperate, you know, I was clinging to my five shot <laughs> Americano. Yeah. And uh, so one kid just, you know, she raised her hand. She was like, you know, what about that? What about that? You know, I mean, it was just like this very innocent and, you know, wonderful moment where she was just joking with me in kind of a kind way. And I don't know, it was a connection, you know, it was a connection. Yeah. I wish, I wish more people in places that create policy and, and pass legislation could see that and work on that level with students. I think they would have a different, uh, as to what the priority should be. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information and a full transcript, please visit blog.heineman.com.